Hi everybody, this is Ben and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education. I do my best to present accurate information, but this is not professional medical advice and does not represent the views of my medical school. Hi everybody, welcome back to Ben's Week in Medical School. This is the end of week 67 of medical school and this is episode 209. Today, I'm going to talk about rounds on my trauma surgery elective, and I've set a date for my first medical licensure exam, the Step 1 exam. Let's get started. I talked about my trauma surgery elective last week on the podcast. One of the things that I talked about was just the experience of actually being involved in a trauma call down. Actually, 99% of the time isn't direct involvement in responding to a traumatic injury. So I expected to be in and out of the operating room, getting to practice scrubbing in and uh, and functioning in the sterile environment of the operating room, but actually I never did get to scrub in, which was kind of sad. I'm going to talk about why and talk about what we did spend most of our time doing, which was going on rounds. As I mentioned last week, when the trauma surgery team first contacts a patient in the emergency department, We do a head-to-toe examination. Let's say, for instance, that we see that there's a probable uh, pelvic fracture and a fracture in the thigh and the femur, and there's tenderness and bulging out of the belly, which suggests some internal injuries in the abdomen. So we would coordinate with uh, a CT scan if they're stable enough, or maybe do an ultrasound right in the trauma bay to evaluate their internal injuries, and then probably take that person to the operating room. Let's say their spleen has to be removed because it was damaged in, uh, in an accident. So now the patient could be moved to the recovery area and then to the trauma critical care unit, but they still have a pelvic fracture and a femur fracture, and on top of that, they've lost blood and have just had a major abdominal surgery to remove the spleen. So at this point, Point, the surgery time for the trauma surgeon is over. Let's say maybe from the point that they were brought into the emergency department to now has been about four hours. And now their uh, splenectomy is complete and they're recovering. So the patient is back in the trauma critical care unit. And we start with uh, the next day would be post-operative day one. And the team is now providing care to the patient. They need to be, the patient needs to be stable enough to be ready for their pelvic fracture and femur fracture surgeries from the orthopedic surgery team. So let's say those happen maybe two days later, uh, post-op day three. So now all of that day is going to be taken up with the surgeries. The patient's going to come back to the trauma care unit, and now they will be on their fourth day since the initial operation for their to fix their spleen. So at this point, the real recovery starts since there's no more, there are no more invasive procedures scheduled. So we have intense monitoring of the patient's condition. How much did they drink? How much did they urinate? How much did they get in their IV fluids? Are their bowels starting to work after the hibernation that your bowels sort of go into after a big surgery? And each morning, every post-op day, the patient will be presented on rounds and all of the features of their care will be discussed. 
the resident and the medical student will first present everything that happened in the prior day and overnight and a summary of the current status. Then they'll dive into every organ system, neurologic function, heart, lungs, kidneys, bowels, wound healing from the surgeries, plans for transitioning to a solid diet, the rehab schedule for the surgeries, um, labs to detect infection, and also weaning the patient off of any IV pain medications like morphine toward pain meds that can be given in pill form and hopefully not opioid pain meds. And then there will be uh, presentations from the different therapists involved, like occupational and physical therapy. The social workers will present to talk about the plan for where this patient will be discharged, maybe a nursing facility, maybe home, who will take care of them after discharge. So this is discussed every morning at rounds. For my one-week trauma surgery elective, I was in an observation-only role. I did not write any of my own notes into the patient chart, and I wasn't even responsible for following a specific patient or presenting the current status. Next year, however, I will be responsible for those things. I'll have one or two patients to present on, but for now, my job was just to pay attention and be ready to get asked questions, which is called pimping, and I'll go into that a little bit later. So the attending physician is there for rounds, and her job is to assimilate all the information from the med student, resident, nurses, social workers, and make sure the plan is correct and that nothing has been missed in the management. But also, um, at a teaching hospital, the job is to teach the students and residents. And this often comes in a sort of quasi-Socratic method, which is called pimping. Every attending has their own style of pimping, but it basically means asking a series of increasingly difficult or sometimes unanswerable questions to a student to, to explore their knowledge of the subject and perhaps find out areas where they need to study more or learn. It can sort of start at any moment during a presentation. One time, the, the fourth-year medical student was describing one of his patients who had a collarbone fracture, and the attending stopped the student and turned to me. Ben, what are the vessels that come off the aortic arch? And I was a deer caught in the headlights. I remembered that there are three vessels that come off of the aorta right after it leaves the heart and that they go kind of out toward the arms and two go up the neck, the carotids. Um, But I could not remember which three of those are the first three branches off of the aorta. So I stammered that there were two carotids and a subclavian artery. And then uh, the attending said, no, can anyone else help? And uh, pointed to a pharmacy student in their third year of pharmacy school. And the pharmacy student said that it was the brachiocephalic, the carotid, the subclavian. Correct. Since the pharmacy student had gotten the question right, the attending continued on and asked, Which artery do we worry about damaging in a left collarbone fracture where the bone is displaced backward? And the student answered left subclavian. That was right. Then she turned to the fourth year medical student. What physical exam do we use to evaluate someone with a posterior displaced clavicle fracture? How do we check whether the blood vessel is damaged? And the medical student answered, uh, we check the blood pressure on each arm to see if the arm on the injured side has a lowered blood pressure than the arm on the non-injured side. So that was a good answer. That is what happens, what you worry about if 
your collarbone breaks and part of it goes backward, you worry that it might impinge on the subclavian artery, which supplies your whole arm. And so you check the blood pressure to make sure that there's nothing pinching off that blood vessel. The attending goes on to discuss with the resident how we would manage such a situation, which type of CT scan would be ordered, and the details of this particular patient whose fracture was not impinging on the left subclavian artery. It can be frustrating to be in that situation because a few months ago, I knew exactly which of the three vessels, which three vessels come off of the aortic arch, but at that moment, I couldn't remember them for the life of me. And uh, um, so for me, that was kind of an example of getting an early look at what's expected during rounds in general. Part of it is actually just being able to answer questions under pressure, which I think is training that all doctors need to have. Later on during that same morning, I was asked another question that I had no answer for. The attending asked when we were discussing a patient who had extensive burns and was recovering in the trauma surgery unit, why do we give beta blockers to patients with extensive burns? The question bounced for me, I didn't know, to the fourth year medical student, to the pharmacy student, and to the resident, and no one had a good answer for that. Um, a couple of people maybe offered up some answer, but it wasn't the correct answer. And then the attending turned back to me and said, Ben, look up why part of the treatment for the recovery of extensive burns includes a beta blocker and give us a presentation at tomorrow's rounds. So I did. And when we got back to that patient the next day who had been in the surgery trauma critical care unit for 30 or more days, um, I gave my two minute discussion of why we give beta blockers to patients recovering from burns. Part of the skill of being on rounds, I guess, is being prepared and knowing everything about your patients. Once I'm in my third year, that'll be my job is to kind of own the, own the care of a patient and also not BSing when you don't know. Later in the week, the attending asked me, how much energy do we get from one molecule of glucose? And, uh, I said, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's somewhere between 26 and 20. And she cut me off and said, uh, the answer is, I don't know, but I will find out. Tell me the answer tomorrow on rounds. And then moved on to something else. I thought it was pretty intimidating, but educational. It's a very subjective teaching moment. And you never know exactly where the discussion is going to go and what parts of your medical knowledge would be drawn upon. But it's also a part of medical training that exposes students to the most risk, maybe for bias and maltreatment and humiliation or embarrassment. So it's not surprising that this experience, this form of questioning, which is called pimping, could range from benign and supportive to really malignant and prejudicial. I want to link a nice editorial comment from the Journal of the American Medical Association that talks about pimping and the pros and cons. And it's pretty readable and short, so I recommend checking that out if you're interested. It's definitely a question. The question of whether this is a reasonable and effective way to teach students, especially given that we know that people are discriminated against and treated differentially by their skin color, uh, accent, gender presentation, it's important to ask whether 
this um, kind of intense performative education actually has benefits and how to isolate those benefits away from the possible downsides of uh, humiliation and embarrassment and maltreatment that we'll do report experiencing. To sum up, though, uh, my first experience with this form of being on rounds and getting asked pimping questions, yeah, it was intense. I'm glad I got to experience it early. I felt that in these cases, though sometimes the manner was abrupt, uh, I didn't feel particularly victimized or humiliated, uh, although I did feel motivated to try to do a better job in the future. I scheduled my step one exam. It's a licensure exam. In the past, students had a lot of pressure to score extremely well on this exam. It's always been a licensure pass-fail exam uh, with the end goal basically saying that the National Board of Medical Examiners approves this student to continue with their training, but a three-digit score was always reported along with your residency applications. So it was intended to be pass-fail. It also functioned kind of like an SAT score does in college admissions as a ranking tool to decide who would get an interview at each program. So this year is the first year that the exam is eliminating the three-digit score reporting. No one, including myself, will know how well I do on the exam except for pass or fail. So it's still a really important exam that's going to assess the learning that I've done. Uh, no longer does it have quite the same pressure. No matter how well I do, I'll only get a pass or a fail. But I have a date now. I have 125 days to start studying and prepping for the exam. It's good to have a goal to work for and to know my timeline. That's it for today's podcast. I talked about rounds and pimping, and I booked my step one exam. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, email me. My address is ben at bensweek.com. Thanks to David Funkhauser for the intro and outro music. Have a great week, everybody.